is come before God in prayer. I'd like to ask you to remain standing, please. I mentioned in the prayer that we are going to announce the results of the offering that we have been uh, receiving really all throughout December, but tonight was the big night that so many of you were gearing up for and planning for, and then we just received that offering. We have another service after this one this evening, and we will be able to announce the sum total of that tomorrow morning, because tomorrow morning we are gathering as a church family on Christmas Day for an intimate, informal service where we will get to celebrate uh, the goodness of what God has done in and through us and see uh, where those, uh, how much money has come in, how much we sacrificed and raised to bless those around us in Christ's name. I hope to see you there. Uh, this is an incredible season of, of Christmas. In fact, the reason we've been doing this offering for a few weeks is that this has been what we call the Advent season in churches. Advent just means coming. It's four weeks before Christmas. The churches all over the world try to really focus on celebrating the coming of Jesus. It's a, it's a goal to, to kind of put some effort into it so that we don't just kind of stumble into Christmas and have a worship service and a religious service and then run off with our day and really kind of miss the whole point. And one of the exciting ways we've been able to do that is to celebrate the fact that when God became man, he was giving everything for us. And so one way that we can prepare for that and celebrate is that we can give of what we have, spend less on ourselves and more on others in his name. So I'm, I'm so grateful for those of you that have participated. I really look forward to celebrating with you tomorrow the final outcome of that during this Advent season. Now, this is uh, Christmas Eve. As you well know, by the way, what is the official greeting? Merry Christmas Eve? That, I can't think of what else it should be, but that just sounds wrong. So I was struggling out there in the atrium as I saw several of you this evening. So if I kind of stumbled over my words, it wasn't you, it was me, okay, a little bit awkward. Uh, appreciate what Jordan said earlier. We do take God very seriously here. Uh, we also like to take ourselves not so seriously. Um, that's one of our core values. We love being together and we love saying that we don't take ourselves seriously so that when we stumble over ourselves, it's okay. Like we don't feel weird. It's just fine. But it is good to be together on Christmas Eve. I don't know what you're hoping for, for Christmas. Maybe some of you are open gifts or you will when you go home this evening. I want to take the kind of traditional, um, what are you hoping for for Christmas thing up another level as we get ready to look at God's word here in Romans chapter five that we just read a few moments ago. Imagine for a moment, uh, purely hypothetical of course, that you had the opportunity to magically, as it were, uh, wave a wand, change one thing about your life. No holds barred, no other limitations. Don't think about it. First thing that comes to your mind. Now, I'm not going to take verbal responses, so... Just keep it in your own mind, okay? First thing that comes to your mind, if you could just zap, change one thing, what would it be? Now, as you're thinking about that, a follow-up question would be, if you do think about the first thing that came to your mind and you stop and you think about it a little while, does your answer change? Because <laughs> for a lot of us, it would change. Some of us, the, the minute I ask that question, you're like, I know exactly what I would love to change, you know? I'd love to lose weight. I'd love to get a steady job. I'd love to be happily married. I'd love a new, I don't know. We've got all these things that we can immediately think of. I'd love it if this aspect of my life was different. But of course, you realize almost immediately when you just even begin thinking about it, the question puts a lot of pressure on you, doesn't it? It's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe I should hold my horses a little bit and not be so, not be so quick to answer this. You're not going to get this kind of opportunity probably ever. Actually, you'll never get it. This is a hypothetical, but you know what I mean. 
right? I don't want to waste, I don't want to blow this opportunity. What if I make a decision too quickly and look back on it for the rest of my life and say, oh, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say this? After all, maybe there's something that if I thought about it long enough, if I changed that one thing, it would have an effect on everything else in my life. Maybe I've got the opportunity to change things, not just at the surface, but something deep down, the good of which will spread throughout my life. Now, I ask that because in many ways, that's the context of the Bible's story about the birth of Christ. No, not exactly that hypothetical question, what would you change about yourself? But in a similar way, it's God's answer to that question. As people, what do we need changed about life? One of the best-known aspects of the Christmas story, uh, which we will walk through, by the way, tomorrow morning as a church family when we come together, we have spent these past three Sundays building up to and anticipating the birth of Christ by talking about from the Bible what the birth of Jesus means. And when, his, uh, when he was born, his birth was announced by angels to the shepherds out in the field as glory to God, peace on earth. Peace on earth. Whatever images that phrase, is, phrase conjures up in your mind, we've spent the last couple of Sundays leading up to Christmas looking at what the Bible means by this promise of peace. That the birth of Jesus means peace on earth. Now, today's passage that we're looking at in Romans chapter 5 is short in terms of the number of words. It is quite long on the meaning. Romans chapter 5 represents a transition in that book, and we don't have the time tonight to go through the entire book, but suffice it to say the first four chapters of that book have been making a key point that is right at the center of Christian theology. We'll get there in just a moment. Now, the passage we're looking at tonight, then, is a transition into what that point means. And so in other words, in just a few verses, we get the summary of a lot of what the Bible has to say about the birth of Jesus Christ and what it means. Our main point is really summarized in verse 1. In fact, the vast majority of the sermon will be about Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Let me read that again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that was the earlier point, I'll talk about that in a moment. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lot in that one verse, in those few short words. There's sort of a a logical progression that makes up this transition, and it kind of simply goes in three simple steps. It looks something like this. Our greatest need, the Bible is suggesting to us, is nothing more or less than reconciliation with God, our Maker. Whether we think about that or realize that or not, our greatest need, the Bible tells us, is to be reconciled with God. But there's a problem. Reconciliation with God requires that we be justified. Talk about that in a moment. And so, then the third point, justification before God only comes through Jesus Christ. And so you see the connection. Greatest need is reconciliation. Reconciliation needs justification. Justification comes through Jesus. So what's the bottom line summary? The bottom line summary is that faith in Jesus is the only way to obtain the one thing I need the most, and that is reconciliation with God. Friends, that's the message 
of not only our passage tonight, that's the message of why Christmas is significant. That's a good summary of the entire message of the entire Bible and the whole Christian faith. That's really our point tonight. Let's look at each one of these three little subpoints quickly in just a bit more detail so that we can understand how this works even in a modern context. First of all, the Bible suggests our greatest uh, need is reconciliation with God. When the Bible talks about peace on earth, it, it means peace primarily between mankind and God. Or, in other words, the relational term for that is reconciliation. And the Bible uses both terms, peace with God and reconciliation with God, and it kind of uses them interchangeably. They mean the same thing. And so, whatever we think of when we hear that phrase, peace on earth, if that just kind of sounds vague or sort of out there or like a pipe dream or, or way up there in the sky, the Bible means something very, very specific and concrete when it talks about peace on earth. It's referring to all of us being reconciled with God. A relationship with God that we had that was broken is now patched up. It's, it's made right. Which, of course, presupposes that there was a relationship with God before that was broken. And that is indeed the case. In fact, you'll notice where the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus occurs in the Bible uh, just for example, I'm going I'm to turn my Bible here to Luke chapter 2, where the angels appear to the shepherds and they announce peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, it occurs right here in my Bible, pretty same in every other Bible. That means everything over on this side happens after the birth of Jesus. All of this happened before Jesus ever showed up. <laughs> now, you don't have to know much about the Bible to understand that's a lot of book, <laughs> Those are a lot of pages. Jesus doesn't show up until we're three quarters of the way through this thing. There's a whole lot that happened beforehand, and everything that happened beforehand was leading up to this moment where God became man and Jesus was born. And we certainly don't have time to go back through everything in that previous three quarters, but here's the bottom line. The biblical story is the narrative of how God is restoring the relationship that we had with him but we broke it because we sinned. That broken relationship and God's promise to restore it is everything that comes beforehand. You see, the Bible begins with Adam and Eve in God's presence sinning and therefore being cast out of the Garden of Eden. They are sent out to the east. Now, for them, that was a geographical location, but that takes on a sort of a metaphorical significance. All of human life, the Bible is telling us, ever since then has been lived east of Eden, as it were. Not geographically, but in terms of our relationship with God. We're cut off from him. We're disconnected from him. And the Bible's very clear about what that means. God is our maker. God is the source of life. You cut yourself off from the source of life and you've got death. You've got pain. You've got suffering. You've got difficulty. Life east of Eden is hard, it is painful, it is cursed. And the point of that is simply to say this, the root cause of every problem in our lives, the root cause, ultimately, according to the Bible, is that we have been cut off from God by our own sin. Now, it's important to start there in order to fully appreciate Christmas because Jesus' birth is the answer to what God says is our greatest need. Of course, that presupposes that we agree with God in that uh, respect, and 
Oftentimes, we don't, at least not at first. If you ask most people, what is the greatest need in your life? Probably the first thing that pops into most people's minds is not, I need to get back together with God. Maybe some people think that way. But just go back to where we started just a few minutes ago. If you could change one thing, what would it be? How many of you, the first thing was, I need to be reconciled to God? Again, don't raise your hands. That's not the first thing that pops into my mind when somebody just throws that question to me. Now, if I stop and I think about it, and I kind of put on my, my theological thinking cap, I might eventually work my way around to realizing, oh, you know what? I believe the Bible. So yes, I believe my greatest need is to be reconciled with God. But that's just not often the first thing that seems obvious to us. We have a lot of other needs in our lives that often seem far more pressing and far more immediate. I'm reminded of a gentleman who came to see me several years ago now, um, was not a Christian, not even a religious guy at all from what I could tell, but for a variety of circumstances and kind of people who knew people who knew people, he got connected with me and, and his marriage was in crisis. It was literally about to fall apart. It was very painful for him. He was quite desperate about it. And so on a friend of a friend's suggestion, he said to me, um, will you meet with me? pastor of a church. I said, sure, I'll meet with you. And we got together. He came into my office. And uh, one of the first things he said, I'll give him credit. He was quite diplomatic about it. Um, I'm going to be more blunt just for the sake of time here. He essentially started the conversation by saying to me, my marriage is in trouble. Um, I'm interested in any help you have to give me, but I'm really not interested in any God stuff. I actually had a Bible on the table that we were meeting at, which was coincidental. I didn't put it there on purpose. It just happened to be sitting there. And he kind of glanced over and he said, I'm not really interested. Like, don't start hitting me with a bunch of Bible verses. Don't start a bunch of Jesus and church talk. But he says, if I'm so desperate, if you've got anything that might help me figure out how to save my marriage, I'm all ears. Well, some of you are chuckling gently. <laughs> Because you know that to me, I, I know what he was saying. He was saying, look, I've got this pain in my life. I've got this immediate problem. I'm in what he felt to be an emergency situation. That he's trying to find a way to get through it and get out of it as intact as possible. And all the God stuff, all the Bible stuff, kind of seemed like, I don't know, maybe some other time. Maybe. But this is far more important because it was so much more immediate. I knew what he was saying, but from my perspective, thinking about things from the perspective of the Bible, that was an odd thing to say. It looked a lot to me like he was mowing the dandelions in his yard, so to speak. If any of you have a lawn that looks like that comes springtime, which many of us do because in just a couple of months, everything in this state is going to start to grow, right? And you know how difficult it is to wrestle dandelions out of your yard. You've got to pull them up by the roots, or you've got you to get to the root if you want to get rid of them permanently one way or another. Of course, if you've got a whole lawn full of the things and they're driving you nuts, the easy thing to do is just fire up the mower and have at it, right? I would like a real show of hands. How many have just done that, okay? Yes, thank you. Proud and strong. I have too. The rest of you liars who didn't admit it. It's okay. This is Christmas. God loves you and forgives you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Now, obviously, you could do that. You, know, you can mow them over and then step back, and as long as you don't look too closely, it all looks green and nice for a little while, but you didn't accomplish anything, did you? You might have made it worse. If you're going to get rid of things, we all know you've got to get to the root. Well, the flower in this guy's life was his pained marriage. 
But the root, according to the Bible, is that he was estranged from God. That's why we have selfish hearts. That's why then we have marriages that break down, which is why we're in the bind we're in. The only hope out of it is to get to the root. The greatest need we have, the Bible says, is reconciliation with God. But reconciliation requires justification. Now, that's a big, fancy word that usually only gets used in court settings these days. It's not part of our normal uh, language. To be justified means to be considered innocent, to be declared that you're not guilty. Somebody who's charged with a crime is then maybe some evidence is presented and it's later proven that they did not commit the crime and so they are declared not guilty. They're therefore justified. They're not guilty in the eyes of the law. The Bible uses this language when it comes to our relationship with God. If the greatest need we have is reconciliation with God, then why don't we just kind of come back to God and say, okay, God, we need you. You apparently love us. Cool. Win-win. Let's just move on, right? Let's just get back together and you can help us have a better life and life will be good. Well, the problem with that is that we need to be justified. You see, we live east of Eden, as it were, because the Bible says we sinned. We sinned. We're guilty of wrongdoing before God. And it's that sin in my heart that has disrupted and broken my relationship with God. Before that relationship can be restored, sin has to be dealt with. It's not an option to just ignore it. Because you see, anytime two people are in a relationship and one party does damage to the other person, you can't just ignore it and have the relationship go on as it was. If the relationship is going to continue and be as strong or stronger, the wrong must be made right. And we all know this from normal experience and just relating with people. And it's no different with God. Uh, a few years ago, we've got a next-door neighbor. My wife and I have pretty good relationships with all our neighbors. We work hard at that. We try to be like the kind of people you would want to live next door to <laughs> or across the street from, not the kind of people you're going, oh, man, I can't wait till they leave, you know? Our next-door neighbors, we have a pretty good relationship with them. Well, one day, a couple years ago, my neighbor parks his truck um, in a place he doesn't normally park it, and there was a reason. I don't remember why now. It doesn't matter. But, but for like one evening, he parked his truck across the street directly opposite my driveway. Bad move. <laughs> totally legal. He did nothing wrong, okay? But the truck was not where it normally belongs. And uh, one of the members of my household backed out of the driveway that evening and gave his truck a little bit of a nudge, let's just say. It was a very low-speed deal, but it was enough that it scratched paint and made a big dent in the door of his truck. We actually hit his truck. Caused property damage. Now, let me pause this story for a minute. This is a true story. Before I tell you what actually happened, let me insert a hypothetical here. What if my response to that was to go to my neighbor and say, he wasn't there when it happened, go to him and say, hey, we just hit your truck. It's on us, our bad, very sorry, totally sorry, feel awful about it. But you know, we're pretty great neighbors when you really think about it. I mean, come on, how many problems? We've been living next door to each other for years. How many problems have you guys had with us? We had another neighbor in the neighborhood that's, that is almost psycho, okay? Got to call the police on them all the time. Do you have that kind of problem with us? I have friends who have bad neighbor stories that would make your skin crawl. 
The kinds of things they have to put up with from late night partying to illegal activity and, and, and even threatening behavior where people don't feel safe in their homes. Have you ever had to deal with anything like that with us as neighbors? Of course not. We're pretty good people. So tell you what, sorry, we owned up, we fessed up. So now that that's done, let's just let bygones be bygones. How about we just say, hey, no problem. I understand it was a mistake. We'll go our separate ways. We'll just keep being great neighbors. Now, if I had said that, would it have been realistic for me to expect that he would have said, sure, fine, and that our relationship would have just gone on as if nothing had ever happened? Of course not. It would be a totally unrealistic expectation. Property damage was done, and it had to be compensated. Of course, we did go to him, and we did say, hey, we did that, sorry, our bad, we feel awful. Um, but I told him, you know, go, he took it to a body shop and got an estimate and showed it to me, and I wrote him a check for the amount, plus a little bit more, I don't know, 10% or something, and I just said, look, go get your truck fixed. If, if it costs less than what I gave you, just keep the rest for your trouble. Uh, if it costs more than that, let me know, you know, we'll be good for it. Was that a painful check to write? Yes. <laughs> Body damage is not cheap. But how has our relationship been since? It's just fine. Because you see, the damage was addressed. It's the same thing with God. Modern people in Western societies like ours tend to think about God and, and, and spirituality as, as if relating to God is like one compartment of life, and there, there's many others, you know, I got my money over here, I got my me time, I've got my job, I've got my family, and then I've got God, and I've got all these kind of different, you know, compartments, and without really maybe even thinking about it too hard, we have a tendency to assume that God will be perfectly happy to kind of take up whatever space we deign to give him in our lives. But if we come to God and say, okay, God, I would like to be good with you. I would like to think of myself as somebody who um, you love, you care about. I would love some God in my life. That's great. Can we just move on now so that I can be like your child and you can be my father and it'll be good? It doesn't work because there's this sin. There's this damage in the relationship that has to be fixed. Now, at this point, my analogy with my neighbor's truck breaks down. All analogies break down at some point. Because I was the one who paid for the damage that was caused, right? It might be natural then to say, okay, even if we accept for the sake of discussion that there's a sin problem between me and God, what do I need to do? And that's exactly how a lot of us tend to respond to God, right? What do I need to do? How does God want me to live? I'll do it. I'll do it God's way so that God is happy with me. I can then be happy with God. He's doing good things for me. I'm doing good things for him. Quid pro quo. Works out really nice. I scratch his back. He scratches mine. This is a great relationship. So what do I need to do to make up for the bad things or the sin that I have done? Just tell me. I'll do it. There's two problems when it comes to our desire to make up for our own sin. First of all, the cost is too high. And secondly, if we were able to do so, it just perpetuates the problem. Here's what we mean. The cost is too high. We're here in Romans chapter 5. You go one more chapter in Romans chapter 6. We're not going to get there tonight. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The consequences, the outcome of our sin is death. You see, sin is not ultimately just the doing of bad things. 
although that's often how it manifests itself. Sin is the heart's desire to reject God and be God in our own lives. And when I've rejected God, that's why I'm separated from him. I'm the one who cut us off from one another. And the only way to pay for that is to be separate from God forever. The Bible uses two words for that. One is death, the other is hell. To be separate from God for all eternity is the only way I can pay for my sin. There's nothing left over. The cost is too high for me to meet. But it's really a double bind. There's not just one problem, there's two. Because even if somehow I did muster enough resources or enough goodness to make up for all my sin, and I paid for my own sin myself, I'd run into the second problem. And that is that it perpetuates the root issue of my sin. To do so would be to try to fight fire with fire. Because you see, paying for my own sin, even if I could, would be doing things on my own strength and my own ability rather than in reliance on God. And that, according to the Bible, is what got us all messed up in the first place. We decided not to rely on God. We instead decided to rely on ourselves. If I did want to push this analogy a little bit further and get kind of weird with it, this might be something like me trying to pay for my neighbor's truck by going to his bank and robbing his bank account and then handing him the money to pay for the truck, right? I fix one damage that I've done to him by doing another damage. It doesn't work. Clearly, that's not acceptable. I can't make up for my sin by continuing in self-reliant sin. And so it's a double bind. A couple weeks ago, I likened it to attempting to, to lift myself up off the stage by grabbing my hair or getting under my arms and pulling up and trying to lift myself up off the stage. I can't do it. And neither could you. No matter how strong a person is, we don't have the ability to lift ourselves up. Now, somebody else can come up behind me and grab me under the arms or perhaps by the hair, although I prefer the former. And if they're strong enough, they can lift me off the stage, no problem. This is where the Bible takes us. We, we need reconciliation with God, but for reconciliation to happen, we have to be justified. So where do we get justification? Because we're in this double bind. That leads us to the third point. Justification comes only through faith in Jesus. I mentioned that chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans was a, a transition you back up one more verse to Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the last verse of that chapter, it says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, it's another word for sin, and he was raised for our justification. But delivered up, it's referring to being handed over to the Roman authorities when he died on the cross. He died to pay the penalty for our sins that we could not pay, and then he was raised from the dead for our, there's our word, justification. He was raised so that I could be justified. How am I justified? I didn't do anything. That's exactly the point in the Bible. He did it. He's the one strong enough to lift me up off the stage. He's the one strong enough to pay the penalty of my sin so that I could be considered not guilty. The Bible says this another way in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 19, it says that in Jesus, with Jesus coming into the world, the story of Christmas, and dying and rising again, the story of Easter, that whole thing was all about, in Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself. 
And there's that language again. It occurs over and over in the Bible. God sent Jesus so that he could reconcile the world to himself, that guilty sinners could be brought back into relationship with God. How could that happen? By not counting their trespasses or their sins against them. That's the justification part. How was all that accomplished? Only when a Savior comes. Only when a Savior comes. And so this first verse of Romans 5 summarizes a vast amount of the Bible's message when it says, because we have justification through faith. What that means is we finally have peace with God, but only through Jesus. And the Bible's very clear, friends, that leads to real, and in fact, the only source of genuine hope. Verses 2 and following, it says, to him we have, in him, sorry, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope's another important word to understand in the Bible. It means an absolute rock-solid confidence in a perfect future that is ahead of me. And in fact, the hope that the Bible says can be found in Jesus is so strong and actually transcends the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of this world. All of those urgent and immediate problems that so consume our lives. Look again at verse 3. We rejoice even in our sufferings. The hope the gospel provides me is so strong, I can still look forward to all of it going away one day, no matter how bad it gets here. Why? God uses it. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God will often use the pain of this life to help me realize this life does not offer me ultimate hope. Only he does. It gets my eyes back on Jesus. And when my eyes are full of and consumed with who God is in Jesus Christ then my eyes are full of the most beautiful person in the universe. There's nothing that shakes that. Hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't let us down because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The love that God has for those who rely on him and the finished and complete work of Jesus that they are relying on means that sickness and ill health will not have the final say. It means that relational pain and loneliness are not my destiny. It means that being a victim of mistreatment, such as abuse or racism or any other form of mistreatment, is not the best that I can hope for. And the love of God and the finished work of Christ means that death itself is not the end. It's the beginning. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks once said that if we're living apart from Christ, we're in the land of the living on our way to the land of the dying. But when I put my faith and trust in Christ, I find that I'm actually now in the land of the dying and I'm on my way to the land of the living. That's the hope of the gospel. This is the promise of God for all who have faith in Jesus. Faith means trust. It refers to what we're banking on, what we're relying on, and what we're trusting in life. 
which is sort of interesting because the word faith is still used quite a bit today, uh, but often people mean different things by it. I was recently reading the Oregonian. They referred to some meeting that had happened at City Hall uh, between some city leaders and leaders of what they called the faith community. What they meant was religious people, pastors and priests, you know. And so often you hear that word, like there's, there's people who are of the faith community and people who, I guess, aren't. They never quite get labeled. <laughs> and often it's easy to kind of divide people in those two camps. There's people of faith and people of no faith, I guess. But the Bible actually looks at it somewhat differently because it defines, when it uses the word faith, it's talking about what you're relying on and what you're trusting. And everybody's relying on something and everyone's trusting in someone. And so as the, the Bible would have it, it's not really a difference between people who have faith and people who don't. There are two kinds of people in the world, according to the Bible. It's those who have faith in themselves We're relying on ourselves. We're trusting ourselves to do what we can do to get the best life we can get on our own. Or there's people who look at themselves and absolutely swear off any possibility that I could create the good life for myself because I know I could never pay for my sin and reconcile myself to God. And so instead, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I rely on what he has done to justify me and therefore reconcile me to God. I'd like to close with ending with a place where we started. The angel's announcement in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus' birth means peace on the earth. The first stanza of the well-known Christmas carol, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing, says in part, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. Because Jesus was born, you and I can have the most important kind of peace there is. Peace with God. So what are you relying on today? Let me encourage you to receive the greatest gift that could ever be given. And that is the birth of a son who is no mere mortal, but was God come to earth to live the righteous life we should have lived. Die the sinner's death we should have died, all in our place, and then rise again from the dead so that you and I could be justified and reconciled with the giver of life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the privilege and the joy of Christmas, of being in your house with your people, of opening up the Bible and being instructed not by a man or a pastor, but letting your word shape our thoughts. I pray that your word would shape our words, that your thoughts would shape our thoughts, that the hope that you lay out for us in the Bible would shape and define the hope that we have as people. And I pray for the heart and the soul of every man and woman and young person in this room. I pray that you would reveal to us the depth of our self-reliance and allow us, give us the grace, Jesus, of repentance that this Christmas we would open ourselves up more to rely less on us and more on you, that we would make the decision to rely on you perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the thousandth time as we surrender to the only one who can reconcile us with God. Thank you so much for Christmas. God, not just for lights and trees and family and meals, though those are all great gifts, but for you sending your son and giving us the hope of eternal life. It is in your uh, name, it is in view of that mission 
that we sing your praises as your church, as a congregation now. In Christ's name.